Older adults living in long-term care facilities have a higher rate of fracture. These fractures can lead to pain, agitation, immobility, and hospital readmissions. Prevention is key. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Alexandra Papaioannou, Professor of Medicine at McMaster University in the Division of Geriatric Medicine and a Geriatric Medicine Specialist at Hamilton Health Sciences. Alexandra and a team of experts have published evidence-based guidelines in the CMAJ for preventing fracture in older adults living in long-term care facilities. Welcome, Alexandra. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Osteoporosis Canada has published other guidelines on osteoporosis and prevention of fracture. Why were guidelines specifically for adults in long-term care required? The guidelines for long-term care were identified uh, that this population, that there is a gap that we hadn't addressed. The frail older adults in long-term care have multiple comorbidities, may have a different lifespan than the older adults in the community and have some unique health issues that they face. And Osteoporosis Canada wanted to address these vulnerable older adults who are often, their issues are not addressed in guidelines. Now tell us how these guidelines were put together. So these guidelines were developed by the Scientific Advisory Council of Osteoporosis Canada And that includes multiple different health professionals from across Canada, as well as grade methodologists from McMaster University who advised us on the grade process and did the grading of the evidence and reviewed the quality of that evidence. The grade system looks at quality of the evidence, the balances of benefits, harms, values, and preferences and resources to grade the strength of recommendations. What's unique about these guidelines is the guideline panel included authors, healthcare providers, researchers, and what was really unique was the representatives from the residents, themselves from long-term care, and family councils. And their values and preferences and what was important to them was included in the recommendations. So how many residents were involved in the the development of these guidelines then? So there were several residents and the Family Health Council of Ontario were involved um, in the process. And again, as we went through the process, we involved a number of family members who represented the residents and their beliefs and values. Before we go into the recommendations, so it sounds like these guidelines are particular to residents in long-term care rather than all older adults. So these guidelines are developed for residents in long-term care. Having said that, there are frail older adults who have similar multiple medical issues and functional needs that may require nursing assistance who live in retirement homes or live in their own home who may be very similar. Okay, so there is a possibility for clinicians then to apply these recommendations to to those special groups. For sure. You recommend dividing residents of long-term care facilities into those at high risk and those at not high risk because that's sort of how your recommendations are divided. How should clinicians make this division? So what's unique about these recommendations is typically one of the risk factor ways we assess risk for osteoporosis is we 
use uh, a test called bone mineral density. In the long-term care setting, we've reviewing the evidence made recommendations that individuals at high risk are those who have experienced prior fractures as well as or having had being on recent steroids with a prior fracture. And what we mean by prior fractures are fractures like a hip, vertebral fracture, pelvis, or two or more peripheral fractures. So we're not talking about a fracture that somebody had as a child. We're talking about a fracture that happened later in life? Right. So after the age of 50, these are the fractures that are most relevant. And particularly in long-term care, 30% of uh, individuals have had a vertebral fracture. And there's also, um, in terms of prevalence, at least approximately 10% to up to a third have had a prior hip fracture. Those are the individuals at high risk or if they've been previously diagnosed with osteoporosis. Okay, so let's begin with your, the recommendations for calcium and vitamin D. So should all residents in long-term care facilities take supplements? So what we've recommended is those at high risk, we've recommended for calcium that dietary sources be reviewed. And we know many of the um, nutritionists and dietitians in long-term care are quite keen to review the diet in long-term care to ensure that seniors are meeting the RDA, which is recommended 1,200 milligrams a day for those over 70, which is approximately, to translate that, three servings of dairy or dairy equivalents. For those who can't take that amount, the amount of supplement for calcium we're recommending is only 500 milligrams a day, which is a change compared to our previous guidelines. So, and the change is in, this is a, a lower amount then? A lower amount in trying to obtain more from dietary sources. So, we're strongly encouraging the dietitians and nutritionists to review the overall menu plan for the individual resident at high risk. For those who are, who are at high risk as well, we're recommending 800 to 2,000 international units of vitamin D3. How do people make a decision between the low end or the high end? Because that's a fairly large range. The reason that we've made the range, Osteoporosis Canada has made this recommendation, is most residents, um, in terms of fracture and falls benefit, 1,000 is adequate per day. However, many seniors initially are vitamin D deplete, and that's why we went up to 2,000 a day. Certainly there's been some studies that shown that it's difficult for certain Canadians anywhere in Canada at any time of the year to get enough vitamin D through exposure to sunlight. So it sounds like supplements are a good idea. Certainly in those groups that are, especially as you age, it's harder to convert that active form to the active form of D3. Tell us then, let's move on to pharmacologic therapy. What kind of recommendations are made in that area? In individuals who are living longer, whose lifespan is predicted to be greater than a year, because that's when the benefits in terms of fracture reduction of the medications start being of benefit, we've placed a high value on those benefits, balancing it with the harms at one year. So what we recommended because of uh, first-line therapy and part and some of the recommendations are, not all the recommendations, we looked at the cost and the benefits, 
as we've recommended. Oral bisphosphonates, alendronate and residronate, are recommended, but not for individuals who have severe renal insufficiency. So for those with creatinine clearances less than 30 mils per minute, we should avoid these medications. What about for residents who have difficulty swallowing? So for those individuals who have difficulty swallowing or taking oral medications, for instance, some individuals with dementia will pocket their medications in their mouth and not swallow. This may increase the risk. We recommended either zoledronic acid, which is an intravenous medication that's once yearly, or denosumab, which is twice a year as first-line therapies. So in that circumstance, presumably, would the residents have to go to a clinic at a hospital or something to get that, or could that be delivered in the long-term care facility? One of the values that was very important to the residents and the families is that they remain in their own home, which is a long-term care setting, and both these options can be delivered in the long-term care setting. Now, you addressed some other recommendations. Talk about exercise, hip protectors. You mentioned uh, falls protocol. Can you tell us a little bit about those? We've talked about uh, very important in seniors, um, particularly in long-term care, to address multifactorial interventions. So particularly those who are at high risk, looking at reviewing medications, environmental hazards, as well as looking at issues such as urinary incontinence. As well for exercise, we've recommended that the exercise that is very important is balance and resistance training. We know that individuals at high risk for fractures, that you need to use both the exercise and the multifactorial interventions to reduce their risk. In addition, in some individuals who are willing to wear them, hip protectors may be a value. Some are, um, for those who haven't seen them, some are like biking shorts and they can have a soft or hard shell. And there's a variety of options that are available that can be provided for residents. However, residents need to be able to wear them both sometimes day and night, especially if they're up at night to go to the bathroom. Um, So they have to be willing to wear them. Now, as you develop these recommendations, did your group identify any important gaps in the literature, areas where research really needs to be done? Really important gap is much of the research for all medications is done in very healthy community dwelling seniors. And so in the future, we need to consider in these frail older adults how research can be done in this setting that includes individuals with multiple medical issues, multiple medications who have different risks for falls and fractures. The other um, gap is looking at future fracture risk assessments that include tools that are already used by long-term care, such as MDS-RI. Well, thank you very much, Alexandra. And thank you for having us. We've been speaking with Dr. Alexandra Papa-Iuanu, Professor of Medicine at McMaster University in the Division of Geriatric Medicine and a Geriatric Medicine Specialist at Hamilton Health Sciences. To read the full guideline on preventing fracture in long-term care, visit cmaj.ca.